always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. The clock is ticking for the HSE. Many hospitals around the country could be faced with caring for sick patients without the expertise of hundreds of doctors. That's if strike action goes ahead. The group who could be downing their tools and walking out of the hospital are non-consultant hospital doctors, formerly known as junior doctors. Earlier this month, they voted overwhelmingly in favour of industrial action in a ballot called by the Irish Medical Organisation. What they're fighting for is better working conditions, improved pay and an end to unsafe and illegal working hours. I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, why Ireland's junior doctors feel they have no choice left but to go on strike. One of the doctors who voted in favour of industrial action is Dr Jamie McGettigan, who works with Limbrick Hospital Group and is a committee member with the Irish Medical Organisation, or IMO. Jamie, can you give me an overview of the working conditions that you and your colleagues have faced and what are the main challenges that non-consultant hospital doctors want and need to be addressed? I suppose they are manifold. Um, There are some blatant ongoing contract breaches uh, going on all over the country and they mostly pertain to unsafe working hours that uh, I suppose contradict the terms of the European Working Time Directive. Uh, in addition, uh, payment for all hours worked uh, on occasion, you know, there there are ongoing instances of underpayment or non-payment for scheduled and unscheduled uh, overtime for many doctors. As well as that, there are real issues obtaining our um, our statutorily afforded annual leave um, with you know difficulty in obtaining that and uh, cancellations of leave at the last minute, and indeed um, our study leave, which which we're discretionarily given um, if uh, if schedules and and services allow. So those are some flagrant contract breaches ongoing at the minute. In addition, the contract itself hasn't really. Uh, changed over the years to cater for the changing demographic. So we have a lot more doctors who are female now. We have a lot more doctors who are further on in life, um, earlier on in their medical career. And I suppose the current contract suits uh, young footloose men in their early 20s who don't have commitments, financial or social or otherwise. So I think uh, we're really hoping for a contract revision to reflect the changing demographic. And Jamie, as you mentioned, one of the changes doctors are calling for is an end to these unsafe and sometimes illegal working hours. Now, you yourself have previously worked these 12 or 16 hour shifts back to back. I mean, how does that leave a person feeling both mentally and physically when you've been working that long, but you're caring for other people? Yeah, I I suppose it's tough. I have certainly worked in jobs where the routine day ends up being 12 hours uh, and it is it is exhausting. Yeah, you know, I suppose five plus days in a row of of that you do become an automaton in some ways and you're trying to get essential tasks done and trying to make sure that the essential things are done for patients. But it means that patients are deprived of some of that extra, I suppose, support and communication that they really need to not only have their disease or problem treated, but also to fully understand what's going on in their body and to understand what the road ahead carries for them. And, and, you know, I I, I certainly 
think that in terms of those long working hours, you know, seeing and in, in some of my colleagues who work in, certainly in, in some other specialties who may be working up to 34 hour shifts, you know, you, you meet these people in the corridors and you hear their stories and you just, it, it, it just beggars belief that a person can be going for that long and to be carrying responsibility for the health of a human being in their hands. So are doctors worried about being able to perform their duties safely when working through such extreme exhaustion? I mean, what kind of issues can arise when a doctor is overworked and, and exhausted? The big, a big part of our job is, is making clinical decisions. It's, it's looking at a patient in front of you and uh, trying to synthesize both what this person in front of you looks like, what their problem is, what are their blood test results, what are their scan results, what is their previous medical history, you know, what has brought them in front of you today, trying to synthesize quite a lot of information and make decisions based on that. And that is quite complex work at times. Um, you know, we, we have to do this often under pressure, which is expected and, and that's always the way. But the person who's doing that half an hour into their shift is not the same person who's doing that 16 hours after working straight through, mm. possibly sleep deprived. And, you know, I consider myself lucky that a 12 hour shift is probably, you know, 12 to 16 is the longest that I will have to. Some of my colleagues who have to carry out operations, I mean, these people could be having to work for 24 hours and then having to scrub in for a surgery at the end of that. And I think we've all experienced what it can be like to to be even driving on the road, for instance, and feeling like, oh, I could not off here. You know, driving is quite a, a simple procedure compared to we'll say operating on somebody so there is there is some real physical danger here to to patients um and and this has been ongoing for years that danger has always been there and i feel like it's it's been worsened by covid uh but certainly this this is a crisis that has been bubbling away for decades now I also want to ask about you, your personal life or a doctor's personal life. We all need time to step back and be with our loved ones, our friends, our family. What kind of normal life activities do junior doctors have to push aside at this point in their life for their careers? And what what do you find that you've missed out on normal activities as a result of this working life? Yeah, I suppose there there isn't an aspect of uh, a doctor's personal life which doesn't take a hit to some degree. You know, people are having to push planning families, they're having to push planning where they're going to settle down and live because I suppose the job just doesn't facilitate that. We're expected to rotate between locations that may be across the country every six months to a year. And, and certainly I know some colleagues who have settled down with a family and they're in Dublin, say, and they're told you have to go to Galway now to work for a year. So that's that's not not commutable, really. So that person has to live in Galway and their family have to continue living where they've settled down. So, you know, it really does interfere with the family unit. And I suppose beyond that, you know, not everybody has a family, not everybody, you know, wants to have a family, but it's time for friends, time for visiting your, your family, time for hobbies, time to just unwind is, is definitely impacted by this. And that inability to have time to, to heal and to, I suppose, recover in between shifts, which can be emotionally and physically draining. It does lead to a sense of, of burnout and and an ability to, I suppose, ever recharge. And, and that, that then bleeds back in sort of a circular way to impact your ability to do your job to your utmost. And the Irish system requires um, training doctors, registrars, SHOs to, to move around the country every few months, which 
doesn't allow them to essentially start building a life, whether that's buying a house or starting a family. It makes that a lot more complicated. Do you know, Jamie, how that compares to other countries? You know, I, I suppose in, in areas like North, North America and um, Australia and New Zealand, where a lot of our, my colleagues have emigrated to, um, there is a lot more um, of a scope for them to, to train in a single location or in, a, in a, at least a commutable location. And certainly some of the impact of that is that people feel like they can't pursue the area that they're most passionate about here in Ireland. So they may opt for something especially which which allows them to train in a, in a more confined area. So a lot of people will become GPs and we need a lot of GPs, but they may become GPs for the wrong reasons. They're, they're not allowed to pursue their passion to become a, a what have you, a cardiothoracic surgeon or a neurologist or a psychiatrist. Um, so instead, they will offer something that that maybe they're not as passionate about. So I feel like we're missing out there on getting people who are really passionate about their, their the field that they want to get into from getting into it. But certainly that it's facilitated elsewhere. And I suppose those systems don't seem to treat their doctors with quite as much disdain as is felt here by, by us in Ireland. Coming up. What will happen in Irish hospitals if hundreds of doctors walk out on the job? Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Paul Cullen, you've been following the story as the Irish Times health editor. How have the HSE responded so far since this ballot was called? And... Do you think there is a willingness to engage with junior doctors to resolve these issues? Well, you have to have some sympathy for the HSE because they are the meat in the sandwich. Um, They don't make policy and they don't decide uh, the financial issues. So while their representatives sit down across the table from from union representatives like junior doctors, uh, ultimately the decisions have been made within the Department of Health and further away again in the Department of Public Expenditure. And it has to be remembered, and those groups are very conscious that there are often tremendous knock-on implications from commitments made to particular groups of workers. The health service is just vast. I mean, you're talking about 150,000 people. In the Department of Public Expenditure, they're trying to hold the line on costs and they're very conscious of, of possible knock-on implications. Um, so, uh, you know, ultimately, it's going to take all of those parties to, to reach agreement and not just the HSC. So what will happen next, Paul? Do you think the strike will go ahead? Well, we've seen this issue um, emerge before in the health service last time, four years ago and and about a decade ago as well. And unfortunately, it it saddens me to report that the only way that uh, disputes get sorted out in the health service is that people go right to the brink. I don't know why this is. It's 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 really like given the mounting uh, waiting lists and and the problems in many hospitals, um, you'd think there might be a better way to to put the issues out to independent arbitration earlier. But um, the doctors have said that um, 
they've given the HSE three weeks to come up with proposals to show that they're uh, serious about it. If they don't, then they'll start planning industrial action. And that's likely to follow the pattern of previous disputes. And then at some point, the Labour Court or some other process will be called in. Paul, what kind of public support do doctors get when they threaten strike action? I mean, there's no denying that most people acknowledge that these doctors are working extremely hard, but then they have loved ones or they themselves who are ending up in ERs on trolleys for long hours without getting proper care. So where does the general public lie when it when it comes to strikes? One of the things that amazes me really is the lack of anger about long waiting lists and overcrowding in the health service. Um, Maybe people are too tired. Maybe people can't see a solution. Um, But if you contrast the the, the foam, the ferment and the anger about uh, people having to wait an hour in Dublin airport recently because of security problems compared to the years they'll spend on waiting lists for essential medical treatment, uh, it's quite astounding. Um, But as I said, perhaps it's um, that people don't see a solution. Um, But I think, you know, the, the typical reaction from the, pa- the average patient is they, they struggle to get access to, to treatment. But once they get in, they feel that the treatment is, is pretty good. Um, I wouldn't say uh, junior doctors uh, enjoy uh, quite, as, are quite as high in the pecking order as nurses, but they're not far off. And, and it can be expected that they will get a lot of public support if it comes to some form of industrial action, at least in the initial stages. So, Jamie, industrial action will go ahead if the HSE does not enter into negotiations and begin working on improving the system. What will happen in Irish hospitals if it comes to that? Yeah, I suppose the main thing to iterate is that nobody wants any harm to come to any patients. Um, You know, patients are one of the main reasons that we are doing this because I suppose they are in danger in the current climate Um, there was recent research published that suggested that up to 2,000 people die per year due to our ED waiting times alone. And that was research that looked back as far as 2015 up until April uh, 2022. So mm. real and substantive har- substantive harm is being done to, to Irish patients. So that's the thing that we're, we're, we're basically, we, we, nobody wants to strike. Nobody wants to, to put down the tools. But we do need to show the, the, the government, the HSE, um, that we're serious about substantive change and we need them to engage with us on that. So, you know, if, if, if it does come to it, um, which we which we hope it doesn't, we hope that the government will make a real commitment to change. But I suppose in hospitals across the country, IMO reps like myself will work with the hospitals to devise, you know, an emergency rota, we'll say, so that so that the hospitals are covered to some degree. But the reality of it is we're constantly operating on what you might call an emergency rota. We're, we're, we're simply spread too thin. So it's it's um, I, we hope that doesn't come to it, but um, we just need the government to engage with us. And if the government and the HSE don't engage, one of the knock on effects is that doctors will continue to go abroad to find work. I mean, this country spends so much on educating its doctors, but then loses so many of them straight after graduation. So, Jamie, what needs to change straight away? Is it better pay or better conditions? I mean, what would convince younger doctors to stay here? We just need to have a system that seems like it wants us to be here. 
So, so we have one of the highest ratios of training doctors to capita in the world, um, but we lose so, so many of them. And the reasons are that there is this perceived absence of, of hope of receiving the training that you want, a lack of hope that you can sustainably have and raise a family. And I, I suppose a lack of hope overall that, that you will be treated well and treated with, I suppose, the compassion and respect that you know that you can get elsewhere. So so certainly doctors have always emigrated for broadening the scope of their training and furthering their experience or deepening their experience in a field to bring that back to Ireland. But I think that that is starting to dwindle and, and people are going away for good. I believe uh, Perth itself has more Irish emergency consultants than the entire island of Ireland. Oh my God. So it's, it is really a, a hemorrhage of skill, uh, talent and resources. Paul, how is the HSC and the government planning to address this issue? How do you first get more doctors into the profession, but more importantly, how do you keep them here and convince them not to move abroad? Yeah, I'm not convinced that the HSE is addressing the problem sufficiently. They would say they are. It's not apparent to me how that's happening. Um, they, they will point out, and they have pointed out, that they are recruiting at a greater rate uh, than ever before, uh, both nurses and doctors and other staff. Um, and for, for once, the money is there. They're unable to recruit uh, at the rate that they would like. So the, 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 the envisaged expansion of the health service is not happening as fast as everybody needs it to, to happen. And they're unable to recruit a, in certain places, um, mostly outside the big cities and smaller hospitals, for example, or if we're talking about rural GPs, for example, where um, there is a, a desire among people who are training in medicine to get the best training and that is in bigger teaching hospitals and they don't want to work in smaller hospitals and so therefore a lot of those hospitals are reliant on on agency or locum staff um so you know there there are huge problems i mean there the 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 ultimate carrot is to create a health service in which you it's a pleasure to work which is freed of overcrowding uh, and all the chaos that we see in emergency departments and, and other parts of hospitals. Um, you cannot legislate for unseen events like pandemics. I think that is a factor in, it's going to be a factor in, in for example, young people who are thinking of careers in medicine and so on. Um, are we looking at uh, a future of one crisis after another, be it external or internal, be it uh, manufactured in nature or manufactured by humans? And that, you know, that, that's, that's a worry that, that would put off good people from going into um, what is a noble profession. But ultimately, um, and, you know, there are, there are stick measures you could use as well, uh, some sort of curb on, on um, the ability of people to emigrate in the first years of their, of their post-college. That's unlikely to go down very well. Um, it has to be remembered, emigration is good for doctors in many ways. They learn skills abroad and most of them have come back over the years and brought those skills back. And uh, we wouldn't have the high standards that we do have here without that symbiotic sharing with other with other medical systems. So, um, you, you, you know, you really have to just make 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 it a, a good working environment. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly admitted that the conditions in which these doctors are working are unacceptable. And he said they fall short of basic levels of, of dignity and respect. But what is Stephen Donnelly himself actually doing to help resolve this situation? 
well, we'll probably see when, when the crunch comes in negotiations. But I, I think that was frank and I think it was an honest assessment by the ministers. There's no point in pretending any other, uh, that it's any other way. I think, um, you you know, you can see what the what the research says and what the, as I said, the lived experience of doctors is. Um, so uh, I think that was a, a useful acknowledgement. I mean, he won't be thanked for it, uh, perhaps in the Department of Public Expenditure, because effectively it's opening the door to some sort of agreement about changes. Um, wh- one thing that did happen before was this monitoring of the working hours. But I think that'll have to be looked at again because it doesn't seem to be working. Because on the one hand, we're being told that there is adherence to, to, to uh, limits on working hours and working weeks. Uh, on the other hand, we're told it's not, that's just not happening. Um, so, uh, as I said, um, Minister Donnelly is limited enough by, by financial considerations and those decisions are made outside his department and further up the chain. There has been a lot of lip service paid over the years um, to wanting to effect change and to enact change and to, to correct the issues that are there. But I suppose a real substantive change has not been made. And, and certainly what we need is people in this health service and it's a, it's, it needs to be treated as such. Um, we have 850 vacant posts and about 1.3 million people on waiting lists. And if, if the HSE is, is, a, is a sailing ship, we're, we're just about getting from port to port, but we're really struggling in between times and we need more for crew. And if the crew at the port are looking at the hull of the ship and see that it's taking on water and sinking, mm. it's, it's not a very attractive prospect, you know. So we need we need to make it an attractive prospect, and we need to we need to make people want to stay here in Ireland and and to enrich our health system with with people because that's what we need overall. That's all for today. My thanks to our guests, Dr. Jamie McGettigan and health editor Paul Cullen. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan. In the news, we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>